Do you want to know who's the hottest president? Doesn't make you glow to learn sick cabello. reward you will earn if you spend some time with us we all dress like your dad and wear glasses we assure you it's not that bad with three dudes wearing glasses my name is Gus, and I'm wearing a black shirt with butterflies on it. My name is Mitchell, and I'm wearing an orange plaid shirt. My name is Evan, and I'm wearing a lime green t-shirt. And we are three dudes wearing plaid. Every week on this show, we learn something brand new. The only catch is we have no idea what we're going to be learning about yet. How is summer treating you guys? I'm surviving. There's no air conditioning in the building that I'm in, and I have to shut my fan off and close my window to do this podcast. So I'm fine right now, but it's going to get swelteringly hot for a moment. In a moment. Yeah, that's, that's not great. <laughs> but other than that, just fine and also separately dandy. Separately dandy, huh? The parts that are fine aren't dandy and vice versa? That's uh, the corollary to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is uh, less important is that you can't be both fine and dandy at the same time. But we never know which it is? Right. Okay. You, you, if you're one, you can't know if you are the other. And you cannot be observed to be both fine and dandy at the same time. Okay. Dude, I, there were so many things I told myself I was going to do this summer, but I'm so tired every day after I get home from work that I've just been <laughs> playing like hours of Pokemon and nothing else. Fuck yeah. That truly is how it goes. I have limited ability to just laze after I get done with work. Because, like, for example, today I had to mow the lawn, which is a fun Ugh. and important task. Gross. Otherwise, I'm just, I work and then I'm exhausted. It's great. I love it. Capitalism, fun. Capitalism. I mean, I like my job, though. That's the thing. Like, even a job that you like that doesn't feel like capitalism is still exhausting. 40 hours a week, too many. They call it 40 hours a week because you got to play fucking 4D chess to figure out how to fit all your time in. That's that's why. Nothing else. No such thing as numbers. Nope. Okay. We're just I adding... still barely know how to play chess. I understand the rules, but none of, like, the strategy. Yeah, same. Like, multiple people throughout my life have taught me chess, and I've remembered, like, a little bit of what each of them said, and now I know how the pieces move. I mean, that's like 80% of it, though. It's just, you you got a bunch of guys, and some guys are differently shaped, and they can move in different ways on your square, and you've got to make it so the one guy gets trapped. You got to box him in, usually in a corner. And if the other guy gets trapped, the other big guy, that is, the other big guy gets trapped, then you win. See, like, I, I get that, but it's the trapping the guy that I have a lot of trouble with. You have trouble trapping the guy or understanding trapping the guy? <laughs> 
Well, both, but mostly, mostly I have trouble with the process of trapping him. Have you tried like using the big lady? I Are have you... tried using the big lady, but I'm usually too bold with my big lady and she gets taken. Ah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like maybe my life would be better if I knew more about chess. That's a bold, bold claim. I'm a bold, bold goose. Oh shit. Goose playing chess? Oh damn. That's a recipe for disaster. But like, okay, this is a terrible question to start us off. I acknowledge that. But like, what even is chess, y'all? Oh wow. We're getting it. We're getting more abstract by the episode. Well, Gus, funny you should ask. Give me a sec while Wikipedia loads. Bruh. <laughs> chess. Why, is would a- you, why would you say it if you weren't ready? <laughs> Because I had clicked the link and I thought the link would be quicker than it was, but my internet kind of sucks. So it ended up taking several sentences, not sentences, seconds to load. Anyways, chess is a recreational and competitive board game played between two players. Mm. That's all you need to know. Episode over. I am digging a little bit into the history of chess because I figured, you know, maybe understanding the past of the game will help me create its future. Um, But weirdly enough... The History of Chess Wikipedia page has an alert at the top from January 2021 that says this article needs to be updated. Please update this article to reflect recent events or newly available information. Did we like discover more chess when they weren't looking? We knew that there was new chess. What's the newly available information? Well, according to the information that predates January 2021, the history of chess can be traced back nearly 1,500 years. We don't know how it started, but we do know that the earliest predecessor of the game probably originated in India by the 7th century CE. Whence it spread to Persia, following the Arab invasion and conquest of Persia, chess was taken up by the Muslim world and subsequently spread to Southern Europe, and by the European Middle Ages, the game evolved roughly into its current form by the 15th century. Basically, chess is fucking old. I'm at the website chess com, which basically says the same thing as the Wikipedia page, 7th century India. But it claims that sort of the rules that we understand as chess and sort of like the theory that we base our modern chess on was first originated by a guy named Rui Lopez, who was a Spanish priest from the 16th century, who wrote a book about chess in 1561. Interesting that you should mention the sort of like modern version because there were other like play styles. How to play chess the old timey way. Well, the old timey way was called romantic chess. Ooh. Oh, hell yeah. The Wikipedia page does not say anything about kissing your opponent on the mouth as a strategy, but I have to assume it's implied. (laughs) There's a whole Wikipedia page for romantic chess. Chess games of the romantic period from the 1700s until the 1880s emphasized quick tactical maneuvers rather than long-term strategic planning. Holy shit. The romantic era of chess play was followed by the scientific, hyper-modern, and new dynamism eras. What? Fuck yeah. It's an art. It's an art, baby. We got, we got isms now. Oh my god. What? I, okay. Like, I know I didn't know shit or fuck about chess, but like, I did not expect it to be this sort of developed. What? Dude, I'm reading what romantic chess is and I'm realizing this is my calling. And uh, uh-huh. it's time to time Ooh. to make neo romantic chess again because romantic style of play is popularized by dashing tactical play and combinations, including um, various like you just kind of want to make shit happen, which is my chess strategy. I don't want to win; I just want things to happen. And apparently, so did Paul Morphy, who was a chess guy who often complained about dull chess and criticized <laughs> the Sicilian defense and queen's pawn openings for leading to this sort of game. 
that's how I that's the voice that plays in my head whenever I read chess names because there's infinite chess plays and they're all simultaneously named something really cool and very silly. In the realm of cool and silly, the immortal game mm-hmm. was a chess game played by Adolf Anderson and Lionel Kisaritsky mm-hmm. on 21 June 1851 in London, where Anderson made bold sacrifices to secure victory, giving up both rooks and a bishop, Ooh. then his queen, and then checkmating his opponent with his three remaining minor pieces. This is considered a supreme example of romantic chess. That's so wild that people were paying enough attention to styles of chess play to be able to categorize them like art. I mean, apparently the romantic era in the arts was roughly analogous to the chess world. It wasn't the chess was analogous to the arts. It was the other way around. Fuck yes. What the fuck? I love that. The Wikipedia chess nerds are rising up. (laughs) So I am reading a bit more about Cui Lopez and his wonderful experience playing chess. It appears that he learned how to play chess in the court of Pope Pius IV when he was there playing with the locals. And he was famed for his ability to play chess blindfolded, which has its own separate Wikipedia page, which appears it's not actually like playing chess with a blindfold on. It's said where you don't see the positions of the pieces and you have to like sort of all keep it in your mind and like not actually see the board. And there are over 10 chess openings that are named for him called like the Lopez Gambit, the Lopez Defense, the Lopez Counter Gambit. And none of them seem to actually have been created by him. But he did invent the King's Gambit, which is yeah. a chess opening, mm. which seems similar to the Queen's Gambit, which was a TV show. Indeed. Yes. When are we going to get the TV show, The King's Gambit, hashtag men's rights? <laughs> Gus, no, Gus. For anybody listening to this podcast in the future, I'm being sarcastic. Can't do that. They're going to clip you. They're going to clip you out of context and be like, see? Honestly, you know what? Let them. Let them do that and then let them look at me and make their own fucking judgments. <laughs> have you guys ever heard of the Mechanical Turk? Yes, I, I want to talk about the Mechanical Turk so bad and I don't have a segue, but because you both heard of it, I don't need one because surely it's just the three of us making this podcast for no one else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But as you both know, as we're talking about alternate ways of playing chess, the Turk, also known as the Mechanical Turk or Automaton Chess Player, was a... Oh, Wikipedia's got to ruin all the fun. It says it was a fake chess playing machine, which it was. But like, come on, leave me in suspense a little bit. It was, it was a hoax. <laughs> it was a hoax that was constructed uh, in the late 18th century and played chess games from 1770 until its destruction by fire in 1854. And it, it, it was like just a guy, uh, like a guy sitting at a desk and he had like articulated arms and he would play chess and people were like oh my goodness this is a a machine doing what humans can do and he would like be (laughs) able and he was able to apparently like speak which was befuddled many people although it was like a magician's trick where you've got the guy sitting at a big box-shaped table that ostensibly held his mechanics but it was really just like a guy pressed up inside the box who was controlling the robot it makes me wonder if people like actually believed that it was real because this page is talking about how like, oh, the court of Maria, Maria Teresa was like very impressed and many famous people came to play chess with the Turk. And it's like, okay, but did they know or were they like, oh, haha, a very famous magician has come into town. Why not? I'll, I'll go see the magician, you know? So I want to talk even more about various schools of chess because of course Wikipedia has an entire page called School of Chess, the much less interesting sequel to School of Rock. <laughs> 
there's already the, you know, school of romantic chess, which we've talked about, the hyper-modern school, which I mentioned, but there's also the Modenese school, the English school, the classical school, and Soviet hegemony. And I just, like, I'm just fascinated by the idea that someone or someones have been paying so much attention to the way in which chess is played that they can discover and develop patterns and give names to them. Like, okay, the Modenese school emphasized rapid development of the pieces, even at the expense of pawn efficiency or whole pawns. The English school prepares attacks as strategic advantages were first obtained. Pieces were developed behind pawns to support their advance. The classical school happened when many people realized that attacks on the king succeeded because of poor defense and decided we're just gonna do defense-based chess. The hyper-modern school rejected the idea that occupation of the center was important and emphasized control of the center by attacking it with pieces from the periphery. Like, this is- there have been many Wikipedia pages on this show that have broken my brain. This one is really fucking me up, y'all. I can't understand how you would look at chess and be able to tell (laughs) the difference between I think controlling the center is important and I'm going to attack the center, but with pieces from the periphery, but I don't think controlling the center is important. <laughs> I, I, this I'm, must take I'm up a lifetime honest. to learn. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't understand how you're this surprised. It's a it's a game for that originated in high courts and is basically a sport for okay. big brainers that's been around for like a bajillion years. But it's as just far like, as I know, there's not all this shit about croquet. There probably no, there is. is. About, there is a, there is about football. You've ever have you ever seen like play diagrams or like tried to play a Madden game without knowing how to play football? That yeah, shit. but football's got humans, like multiple humans colliding with each other in it. This is a chess has towers and knights. <laughs> I okay, babe. If you if you think people human beings literally crashing into each other is the same thing as chess, I feel like we have different opinions on the complexity of human life. As the as the chess people say, checkmate. Well, no, you can't just say that. That's not how it works. You can't say checkmate at any point during a chess game and automatically win. Neither you guys know. You don't know how to play chess. I am the one who plays chess. I mean, I know how to play chess, and I know that's not the rules. But you do know if I say checkmate, the game's over, right? You say well, checkmate no. when you Again, checkmated no. me. To bring us back on topic, why would I you currently... ever want to do that? <laughs> Because we've gone on this regression for several minutes, and I tried to look up if there were schools of croquet play. It appears that there are not. But the final school listed on that list was the Soviet chess school. And it appears that the the Soviet chess school was basically fast-paced and daring, but not actually, because only some Soviets played like that. And it more seems to refer to the domination of the sport by Soviet players after about like 1938 or so. More of an era than a school yeah it would seem but i mean maybe they all went to the same literal chess school they very well might did it was it was soviet times man so modern competitive chess had some hurdles in getting started did it the 1851 london chess tournament which was the one that adolf anderson won that tournament quote raised concerns about the time taken by the players to deliberate their moves on recording time it was found that players often took hours to analyze moves and one player took as much as two hours in 
20 minutes to think over a single move at the London tournament. Jesus. The following years saw the development of speed chess. Got him. <laughs> That's good choice. Is that when they started using clocks? Because they were like, we can't, we can't with in this shit anymore? In 1861, the first time limits were employed in a tournament match. So it took them 10 years to actually put clocks in tournaments. But during those 10 years, they were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't let people deliberate for two hours and 20 minutes. Maybe. Yeah. This is getting excessive even for us, the chess people in London in the 1850s. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you know that there's a chess musical called Chess and it's written by ABBA? What? Holy shit. What? Yep. Yep. Tell me more. It's my ace in the hole. Well, I mean, there's a lot to tell, but it is, as I have described it, a uh, musical with music by Benny Anderson and Bjorn Uveus of the pop group ABBA, which involves a politically driven Cold War era chess tournament between two grandmasters. I don't know why I did that. One American and the other Soviet <laughs> Russian. As with all, you know, chess media, the American is apparently loosely based on um, Bobby Fischer, because of course. But it was released in the 1980s, and according to Wikipedia, it allegorically reflected the Cold War tensions present at the time. <gasps> Oh boy. Basically like satirizing the hostility of geopolitics with through chess and such. This is on the concept album that came out in 1984. This was um this is where One Night in Bangkok comes from. It's that like uh -huh. that the one big famous song from this where I guess they're all going to Bangkok. I haven't listened for to it. For one night. <laughs> for one night. Presumably there's something special about the place, but who knows? Maybe they just were all there. I'm sure friend of the show Emma Ginsburg knows way more about this musical than I do. Yeah, no, it's gone on and had it's had many, many tours, including all the way from the 80s up until 2018 West End Revival and apparently a 2020 Moscow tour which um, is curious because I didn't I don't know much about the theater scene in Moscow especially hold on I gotta find a plot summary to see if the Soviets win because that would make more sense <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat so it seems that that the chess playing is not actually like it's a it's a framework but it's really about interpersonal tensions between Anatoly and Svetlana and Vigand and I I can't be bothered to read this entire plot summary. It's a musical. You're going to have a fun mm -hmm. time. There's going to be a black and white color theme. There's going to be romance. There's going to be one night in Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's ABBA. Like, you can't go wrong. But evidently, this was, like, remarkably successful in England. Kind of, sort of here. But it, it got a lot of attention in England. And apparently, on a BBC Radio 2 listener poll of the number one essential musicals, Chess placed seven so there huh this, this is what right. talking about according to the wikipedia page it was critically panned with Got the new york him. times saying that the evening has the theatrical consistency of quicksand <laughs> and described it as a suite of temper tantrums where the characters yell at one another to rock music okay, okay. i mean that sounds pretty tight actually <laughs> i a i would love that B, I guess they really weren't ready for reality TV. And <laughs> C, we know that critics have been wrong before. Oh, they have. Roger so, Ebert. Come on, man. This oh, ending Roger C Ebert. is the best ending. What is wrong with you? <laughs> the rules of chess have changed. Have they? Several times, in fact. Nobody can agree, really, for a long part of chess's history about what stalemate counts as. Mm. Oh. Because there are times when you just get the game into a stalemate and nobody can win. It was originally considered a form of victory victory, albeit inferior to actually checkmating your opponent. At various times it has been considered a win, a draw, or even a loss for the player causing the stalemate. Since the hmm. 18th century, we've all kind of agreed to say stalemate is a draw which makes sense. Right. The convention that white moves first was established in the 19th century. Previously, either white or black could move first. Odd. There used to be 
be something called perpetual check in the rules of chess, but it's no longer a thing. What was perpetual oh. check? Uh, it was a situation in which one player could force a draw by an unending series of checks. This typically arises when the player who is checking can't do checkmate, and also failing to continue the series of checks gives the opponent a chance to win. Okay. Players usually agree to a draw long before this situation plays out because they just see it happening forever and ever and ever, but there is no longer an official rule that perpetual check counts as a draw. Because it's just not fun to play at that point, I would imagine. Well, you're just going in circles, yeah. Well, and I, and I do know, not from having like been good at chess, but from viewing media such as um, Searching for Bobby Fischer and more recently The Queen's Gambit, that like people who are really good at chess can know when they're losing, and so they'll be like, why don't we take a draw? Or they will, mm -hmm. or they will concede so that the game doesn't actually always get played out, just because mm -hmm. like it's been around so long, it's limited in scope, so you know kind of like what the pattern of the board is and you can tell that you're gonna lose time listen time time is money man it's a timed game you can't be you can't be rude don't be rude while i'm gaming <laughs> so elo ratings or elo wikipedia has it we're doing a lot of wikipedia on this episode it has it just as a word elo but I, i've always seen it like capitalized so i don't know is a rating system that is very common in many, many types of games, including, and I love that Wikipedia notes this, along with things like American football, basketball, table tennis, Scrabble, diplomacy, and esports, such as Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, and League of Legends, because Wikipedia yeah. is run by gamers now. It was originally invented for chess, and it was invented by a guy named Arpad Ilo, who was a Hungarian-American physics professor who said the original type of ratings, the, I guess, the Harkness system of ratings, doesn't actually, like, have a, a statistical basis. It was just based on tournament wins and losses. And he was like, this isn't mathy enough. We need to devise a better system. <laughs> Put simply, from how I can understand it, from looking at this in, like, prior knowledge, ELO ratings are based on your win or loss, you kind of get bumped up or down. It's Pokemon Showdown is rated this way. Uh -huh. and, you, and you play against people who have similar ratings, and you have a certain, like, calculated expectation to win or lose. And then the outcome of that, like, updates it. It's a very like like a Bayesian statistics kind of thing. Cool. That's good to know if I ever take anything from this episode into my brain permanently and become good at chess. Yeah, you gotta know what your rating is, baby. You do. Just to close us out, I know we talked about, joked about 4D chess at the beginning of the episode. Oh. 3D chess is an actual thing. What? 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 3D oh. is any chess variant that uses multiple boards representing different levels, allowing the chess pieces to move in three physical dimensions. In practical play, this is usually achieved by boards representing different layers being laid out next to each other. And uh -huh. people have been playing this since at least the late 1800s, one of the oldest being Raumschach, German for space chess. Space chess! <laughs> which was invented in 1907 by Ferdinand Mack and considered the classic 3D game. <laughs> That's wild. I'm trying to figure out how these things move. Oh my God, okay. Rules. Rules? Oh, Christ. This is insane. A rook moves through the six faces of a cube. A bishop moves through the 12 edges of a cube. Uh-huh. A knight makes a 0-1-2 leap, enabling it to control 24 different cells from a board center. A unicorn. A what now? A unicorn. Oh. Moves in a manner special to a 3D space, i.e. triagonal movement, through the corners of a cube, any number of steps in a straight line. The queen combines the moves of a rook, bishop, and unicorn. The king moves the same as a queen, but only one step at a time. Oh my god. So There's unicorns in this game. 
game. There's unicorns in 3D chess. Holy shit. That's so cool. Hey, wait a minute. Do you remember the Immortal game? The romantic chess Immortal game? Yeah. yeah. And Adolf Anderson, his opponent, Lionel Kisierski, developed an early precursor to Round Shock called Cubic Shock, which was cube chess. That's and- so cool. <laughs> and there's this quote that says, it is the most popular 3D board amongst inventors, and at the same time, the most mentally indigestible for the players. <laughs> In addition to 3D chess, there is also this thing called fairy chess, which is where basically you just completely screw with the rules. You make the board like 10 by 10, 8 by 10. There's different ones where like the pieces freeze when you attack them or they go back to their starting places. But part of this fairy uh-huh. chest is that there's a list of like 50 different new pieces that you can add. There's one called like yes. a zero, a wazir, an alfil, a zebra, a camel. There's so many. Dude, Grasshoppers. It's just, it's just, they should just make an ungulate chest that's just only ungulates <laughs> allowed. Oh my god. Okay, now that my brain is just completely fried, what have we learned today? Chess is a board game wherein <laughs> two people compete against one another in order to take the opposing king. Not gonna lie, I think we should just edit it at chess is a board game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There are a bunch of different schools of chess because, you know, it's an old ass game. It's at least like 1500 years old and people have been developing different ways to play it since it was invented, including romantic chess, which is about quick action and sacrificing your pieces and kissing your opponent on the mouth. Probably. Probably. Indeed, it is a very old game. It can a little, still a little uncertain, but it can be traced back to India in the 7th century CE and then eventually made it away, made its way around the world. Got some variants, got some players in different places. There's always a very highfalutin game. There is a musical about chess because we like talking about musicals on this podcast. The musical was written by ABBA, which is great because ABBA is good. It was apparently not great, but it's sort of about Cold War tensions and chess, which is a common trope in, I'd say, most of chess media that's happened since probably the creation of the Soviet Union. There's such a thing as 3D chess. And it's hard, and there's a unicorn in it. That's really the most important thing to, from today. <laughs> Truly. Much like Blade Runner. Why is there a unicorn in it? Who the fuck knows? But there is one. Yeah, I should not have been as surprised about the complexity of chess as I am. But I am. And maybe I will be better at chess now, but probably not. That's it, I think. That's all. Yeah. That's all we've ever learned about chess. That's all we've ever learned, period. That's it. I've learned <laughs> nothing else, ever. Well... Thank you for listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. If you hate the show, please subject it to two hours and 20 minutes of you deliberating about what your next chess move is. And either way, follow us on Instagram at 3DWPCast. I'm Gus. I'm Mitchell. I'm Evan. And this has been Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. Have a great day. Next time on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid. I mean, listen, man, we all forget about time zones sometimes. I cannot hear either of you. Give me like a hot second, please. Hey, we can say whatever we want about Mitchell while he's not listening. I don't want to say anything particularly mean. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, it's funny to say nice things and then act like you're talking behind someone's back, but like, I feel like it's weird to do it on a podcast. Not not the venue. Mitchell is Hello? such a person. Hi! Nope, still nothing. Mitchell is- ha! One of the people I know. He's got hair and skin and ears. I know at least three people without skin, so he's on top of those guys at least. Oh shit, do you? Who? (laughs) Carl, Jennifer, and Shania. (laughs) Twain? 
Find out next week on Three Dudes Wearing Plaid.